Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. So... I've had an email from Annika or Anika, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce your name, who says, I have a wirehead pointing griffin, Rosie, and I'm going to summarize the next bit. So you don't work Rosie. Rosie is a, a pet dog, but you are very into training her using gun dog skills and you want to have control over her out and about. And you can see that she's a, a very able dog with a lot of potential and you want to help her achieve that potential. I'm sort of some summarizing things here. There's a little bit of conflict with traditional methods because you say that, I'll quote this bit, um, you say, I've asked our breeder for advice, but she insists on using an e-collar, which works for her working dogs, but I don't feel right about it for my dog. And then you say, one thing I'm struggling with is the chase. She was successful as a puppy in killing a rabbit in our backyard and a shorebird at the beach. So she has self-rewarded and continues to try in engaging in chase. I've been working with her on the long line using distance to build back her attention on me around game, but I think I need some more guidance. So we've kind of got that as a, as a one email here. And then we've got another email from Tony, who I'm going to summarize this one again. So Tony has a young adolescent, 14-month-old Slovakian with her pointer, male, and has hit some difficulties in adolescence, having previously been doing really well before that, which I would say, by the way, is not really a problem. It's just, it's very common. So you just got to kind of get through this stage is one thing to say. Um, but you are also experiencing, Tony, the same sort of conflict with traditional methods. You say, I'm going to quote this bit from your email, I'm trying very hard to stick to my force-free principles, but I'm constantly being told by traditional trainers, I personally know a few, that I will never train this dog using completely force-free training. And you say that you're trying to train using force-free methods, but it's going quite slow. The progress is very slow. And the traditional trainers use as evidence of force-free not working. And you do say, is it to be expected for a force-free approach to take much longer? Is this likely to be unacceptable to most traditional trainers as they seem to see any evidence of disobedience as a curse on your whole future with your dog? And the other thing is that you're also having trouble with chasing. And you say that um, your dog wants to chase bolting ground prey and also wants to go up to other dogs or run up to, run up to engage with other dogs. And that you're also struggling with finding a reinforcer. So... Both food out and about doesn't seem to work or motivate your dog and 
Tuggy and flirt pull and stuff doesn't seem to be something he's interested in in these situations either. And you say that you've got a cupboard full of new things that you bought for training out and about, and your dog can be mad about them, but not if another dog appears, then they become the most boring thing in the world. So there's lots in these emails, guys, both of you, <laughs> to talk about here. Um, in fact, it's slightly overwhelming the number of different things that you brought up. So we have covered a lot of these subjects before. So the chase, you want to listen to the last episode that I just made. In fact, I'm always tempted to say that I'm not going to talk at all about that bit of your emails because I did cover it really comprehensively in the last episode. But there is something in the background of both of your emails, kind of an implied thing, which is something I want to kind of talk about, although it's a bit hard to know how to verbalize it. So there's something to do with, well, there's two things, actually. There's, there's allowing your dog to discover that certain things are reinforcing when they're things that you don't want your dog to learn are reinforcing. So I know that with game itself, that can be really difficult because obviously you can't control where the bunnies are and where the game is and that sort of thing. But when it comes to other dogs, definitely you can control that a lot a lot better. So if you don't let your dog run up and play with other dogs or learn as they go through puppyhood and adolescence that it's possible to do that, your dog will never try to do it. And this is something which it's really, well, I mean, I wouldn't say they never try to do it, but they're really unlikely to try to do it. If they do try and do it, they will be um, cautious or thoughtful or hesitant about it. And there'll be masses of opportunities for you to recall um, and intervene. And, you know, it just will, it just probably is really unlikely to happen. So I think talking about other dogs and what to do when you're out and about. So the first thing that I would say is that you really want to avoid other dogs. And I know that in some locations that can be really, really difficult, but I'm only going to cut you so much slack when it comes to certain locations being really difficult. Because I live at the moment on an island, which is nine miles by five. So I can't just drive further. If I, if I really want to escape everybody else, there's a limit to how far I can drive. I can't just keep driving into the countryside because I'd be in the sea. So that means that everybody with a dog is pent up in this small area, which is a subject I want to talk about in a future podcast. But uh, for now, let's just say that. And that means that you've got to be really canny and savvy about where you go. So it doesn't matter where you live. There are places that you can exercise your dog where you're not going to run into other dogs. So you just got to take extra time to drive there if they're further away. You've got to figure out the times of day that other people don't go out so much. So I would say people tend not to go out in the evenings. If in the summer months you figure out when sunset is and you go out in the last hour before sunset, you will very rarely run into people because people just are not out there in that hour, even though it's actually the most ni the nicest time of day to go out. It's really, it's the coolest time of day often. And it's, yeah, it's a really beautiful time of day with the sun setting. And it's one of my favorite times to be out and about actually this hour before sunset in the summer months. And most people were not out at that time. Most people stick to their regular routine, regardless of the the sort of time of year or the season of the year that it is. So if you want to avoid other people, you can be a little bit canny there, particularly in the summer months. 
and use this last hour, which we're about to lose soon, I think, because it's just sort of creeping earlier and earlier as we get into winter. But anyway, it is there in the summer months. And yeah, as I said, be canny about the locations that you choose. Be really avoidant in your sort of, um, if you spot another person in the distance, walk in a different direction. Take evasive action. Don't continue to approach them and think, oh, I'll just grab my dog or put my dog on the lead or whatever. Just just don't do that. Just walk in a completely different direction. And it will take you, if you've got a dog which is already used to running up to other dogs, it's going to take you a long time before you create a dog which is disinterested in other dogs. But this is one thing that you can do. It's much more effective if you can do it from day one, from the very beginning. So dogs are very context specific. They associate certain behaviors with certain places. And you can take advantage of this in this in this way. So if you teach your dog that being out and about in a public place off leash means they can run up to other dogs and that that is a reinforcer for them, then that's something that they're going to associate with that location, with being out and about in a public place. If you teach your dog that when you're out and about in a public place, other dogs are over there in the distance, but we don't go up to them and they don't come up to us. Or maybe there just aren't any other dogs, so we just never get to learn to go up to them because you just avoid them so completely. Um, So in that way, your dog won't learn that. Meanwhile, you might arrange some play dates in your yard or garden, depending on where you live and what you call the space outside your house. Um, But yeah, you might arrange some play dates. And I highly recommend, by the way, that you attend a regular training class around other dogs. So not a one-to-one class, a group class, and that you do that as early as possible in your dog's life and that you keep doing that and that you find some way that you can integrate your dog into that environment, whether it means that you have to be, you know, assuming you're not dealing with fear here, you're assuming you're dealing with a dog which is just uh, really excited by other dogs and really in a sort of positive way and wants to play with them and is distracted by them. They're not afraid of them. So if you've got that kind of dog, you want to find some way that you can be integrated into some kind of class environment, even if you're starting you know, in a far corner of the hall or um, behind a barrier or two. Um, and even if you're not able to ask for any behaviors from your dog yet, you're just able to play find it and sprinkle treats on the floor. There's different ways that you can be integrated into a class, but you've got to find someone who can help you with that, someone who can help integrate you into a class. Working in a one-to-one way isn't going to help you achieve a dog which is going to focus on you around other dogs because you need to you need to have the other dogs there to be able to be working on that. And obviously, again, this is much easier if you have just attended a training class, a group training class with your dog, as soon as you get your dog or your puppy, and your dog just grows up or your puppy just grows up going to a training class with you and learning in the training class, hey, my handler is here and we do stuff together and there are other dogs around us, but we don't go and interact with the other dogs. They're doing their thing and they're earning their reinforcers and I'm here with my person earning my reinforcers in this little bubble between me and my person. So yeah, there's just loads that you can set up there to to help things work for you. And in terms for, you, for both of you about this conflict between traditional training and force-free training, you're always going to have voices from traditional training. I don't really know how to advise you to negotiate that. Um, I just tend to not get into it. And that would be my advice to others as well is, I mean, unless you particularly want a traditional input on something because you think it might be useful, because there is a lot of valuable information, which 
traditional training has, which we really need. We don't want to be throwing out the baby with the bathwater or whatever the phrase is. Um, we want to be mining traditional training for all that it's got to offer. And it does have loads to offer. So if there is something that you want to know and you think that a traditional trainer can help you, then ask them. But I mean, I, you wouldn't really want them to come over and to be starting to tell you what to do with your dog. So yeah, I don't know what situation that's been happening in, but to me, it sounds pretty rude. I mean, even if I saw someone struggling with their dog, I wouldn't take it upon myself to go over and start telling them what to do, because whatever it is that I'm, either I'm telling them to do something force free or something using force, that's just not very polite. So you've got to wait for the person to ask for help. So I don't know how this has come about, but <laughs> people in the dog world tend to just go and tell other dog people what they think <clears throat> should be done or what, and it's got nothing to do with force-free training. You can see it echoed across all kinds of other subjects like food, like what you should feed your dog or, um, oh God, there's probably lots of other things. What, what piece of equipment, whether you should put a collar or a harness on your dog. There's like, there's people who are happy to advise other people on all kinds of things in life. So this may not be anything to do with traditional training. I think you just have to acknowledge that these people are trying to be helpful, even if they're actually not helpful. I just tend to say thank you very much and yeah, whatever, and, you know, smile at them and not really engage them very much, not encourage that behavior by reinforcing it through conversation. Do you see what I mean? So if someone's trying to tell you what to do with your dog and it's someone telling you how to use force and you don't really want to hear that because you have no interest in doing it, then just smile and say thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And then change the subject. You know, you don't encourage them. Don't reinforce them by engaging conversation with them on that subject unless it's a subject which you do want their input on as i said so yeah that's probably that'll be my tip i think um for both of you but i do acknowledge that there are certain subjects that you may turn to traditional training for help with like chasing and the help that may be forthcoming may involve the use of aversives and so i guess that you have to realize there are certain subjects which a traditional trainer is going to approach through the use of aversives. And there are certain things that there are, there are a wealth of information on which have nothing to do with aversives, like, for example, hunting and using the wind and how your own body movements influence your dog's body movements and where a bird is likely to be if a dog is pointing in a particular direction or how to encourage quartering. So, you know, all of these things, which there are there are books written about. <laughs> There's so much information and all of that. Um, that's all stuff you want to be learning about, like a sponge from traditional training, because there's no difference with all of that in terms of force-free training, because those are just environmental reinforcers. So in terms of game and wind and scent and all the rest of it. So we need to learn how to use all of that from people using traditional training. But if you're trying to figure out how do I stop my dog doing something? How do I stop my dog chasing? How do I stop my dog eating dead things? How do I stop my dog, I don't know what other things it might be, pulling on the lead, for example, then those are the things that traditional trainers are likely to be suggesting aversive answers for. And so once you figure that out, just don't ask for help if these are things that you're struggling with, which you don't want your dog to do, because that's where aversives are going to be, are likely to be suggested. Does that make sense? But force-free handlers often can be often can they can be too sort of permissive with their dogs and this is something that i see quite a lot of so it's a little bit like um a dog runs in on a retrieve and they don't do anything and they don't wave to the dummy thrower to pick up the dummy and they don't sort of recall the dog and they just sort of maybe give a bit of an awkward laugh and then 
you know, take the retrieve from the dog when they come back? Or um, what other things are there? Oh, the dog, for example, ignores a recall whistle because they're sniffing something in the bush and the handler just doesn't do anything. They just are like, oh, well, damn it. The dog's ignored the, the recall whistle. That's a shame. But they don't do anything. And the dog is sniffing the bush and continuing to sniff the bush and continuing to self-reinforce sniffing the bush. So the thing that I would say is that as a, if you want to be a successful force-free handler, you have to be on it in terms of boundaries. I think that's a better way to put it because you're not raiding on your dog's parade. You're removing them from the environmental reinforcer and you've got to do that quickly or you've got to pick up the environmental reinforcer so it's not available anymore. But you have to be really boundaried about that. I mean, equally, if you've got your dog on the lead and you're, for example, working on heel work and they decide to um, just suddenly attempt to reach something, to throw their weight into the lead and to sort of tow you over to, I don't know, a bush that they want to smell because another dog's weed on it or something, you're not going to let them tow you two steps over to that bush and smell it, which I've seen lots of people do. And then people sort of stand there and let the dog, I don't know, sniff the bush for a couple of minutes before they decide to continue doing heel work. So no, and <laughs> I don't know how to say it better than that. Um, dogs, male dogs, which are going to cock their legs and um, during heel work, they just decide to have a little wee or something or, and the handler doesn't sort of rush them on or try to stop that. The handler, or interrupt that, they, the handler just sort of stops and lets them have a wee. You know, all of these things are really, really important. It's in the it's in the micromanagement of your dog's moment to moment reinforcers. And yes, you're allowed to do that. And no, you're not allowed to do that. And you've great. You've done this behavior for me. Now you can ha have this thing that you want. You've earned this thing, but you're not having it until you've done the behavior that I want you to do. Um, so it's it's in that in in a kind of really um, fundamental way. And if you let your dog snatch little things here and there, snatch real reinforcers, tow you up to a bush to have a wee, go and, I don't know, run off and visit another dog or something because you're just walking somewhere where there are loads of other dogs or, um, I don't know what other examples are there, um, continue to sniff something when you've recalled them um, or, um, I don't know, maybe you're practicing stays and your dog gets up from the stay before you've released them and you just let them wander off and decide, okay, we'll just stop here then because you've decided to get up. So let's just stop there rather than, um, I don't know, getting the dog back quickly and doing an easier, basic, shorter stay, which you can be successful on and you can end. So, you know, these little things, these sort of letting the dog just break the, the, I don't know how to describe this, break the boundaries, be like, experience you as permissive and not experience you as someone that upholds Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. 
I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. like boundaries which they know where they are and by boundaries i don't mean that these are like scary horrible aversive things they're just they're just things that they're rules they're just you know this is how the world works you do this and then you get that so if you allow that learning process to to get interrupted by the dog um um i don't know just sort of taking things where they want them rather than rather than being permitted to have them as a reinforcer for the correct behavior then you can end up with a dog which it just becomes actually frankly quite untrainable especially when you're working around really strong environmental reinforcers that like game where your dog you know because if your dog isn't going to wait for you to release them to jump out of the car they're not going to sit to a whistle when there's a bunny running way under their nose are they so it all kind of i know i know these things are very difficult and just in terms of chasing and just because your dog waits to get released out of the car it doesn't mean they can sit to a bunny but the the sort of um framework for your life with the dog has to be based on rules which the dog understands and these rules are not punitive rules in a force-free framework they're just in fact i think it helps though because it's structure for that balanced word it's structure it's structure which which the dog feels that they understand and they understand how to earn a particular reinforcer and they understand that they won't be allowed this particular thing in this particular situation so they're not going to try to get it and be frustrated when they don't get it because they know that that the situation isn't one that enables them to get it if that makes any sense it's very vague now but yes so generally that's something that i would say for both of you that structure is is really important um right i think i've waffled on enough in regards to these two emails but yeah check out the previous podcast on chasing because obviously that's going to be really important for both of you hold the line so we've got one more email to respond to here so it's from jack who says hi joe really enjoying your hold the line podcast especially the clicker retrieve I've shied away from clickers in the past, I assume as my family have trained working dogs the old-fashioned way. My 13-week cocker is taking to it really well. She has loads of drive, and it seems she's very keen to play and work. My question is, will you always reward the click and retrieve with food? Obviously, I'd like to take her out into the field and some working tests, and can't see myself carrying a bag of treats around with me. Will she always expect a treat, or should I fade that out over time? So, Jack, there's a... Good question. We have touched on that question in a previous podcast episode. There was a whole episode we talked about how to use food, fading out food during, for, you know, whether you want to do that in a competition environment or not. And there was, I think we went into it in a lot of depth. So you probably want to look back. It's going to be one of the more recent episodes. If you're back at the clicker retrieve episodes, then you might not have got there yet. Um, so I'll just sort of briefly say that 
if you click, you're going to give a treat and that's going to continue forevermore. So you're not going to ever click and not treat because that would devalue the clicker for your dog. So it would just come to be a meaningless noise. And so, yeah, yeah, cease to be important and useful as a marker. So if you click, you're always going to treat. How and what you do when you're out and about working your dog. So the first thing I would say is that I encourage you to reconsider when you're just working your dog, whether you can't use treats. It's actually pretty easy to have a little bag of sausages or whatever in your pocket. And when your dog brings something back, you just pop a sausage in their mouth and then release them again. So it's actually a really easy, simple thing to be doing when you're out and about. It's not difficult to be in the field with treats in your pocket because I would always do that. And the other thing I would say is that if you intend to compete with your dog in working tests or trials, that it's especially important that you use food in a regular, non-competitive shooting environment. I can give you the example of, of e-collars in North America. So people who use e-collars in North America will put an e-collar on a young puppy before they've ever used it. For many months before they begin to use an e-collar, the puppy is wearing a dummy collar. So that when they start to use a real e-collar, the puppy doesn't become aware, doesn't associate the the stimulus around their neck with the appearance of this new thing, which is suddenly being put on their neck. So the puppy doesn't understand where this is coming from and that it's to do with the collar. And then people will always put the collar on their dog in training because you don't want to have a situation where the dog, um, I don't know, commits a heinous crime like chases something and isn't um, punished for that with the e-collar because the dog will then realize that when they're not wearing the collar, they're not, they're sort of free basically. And they're, they're not ever going to be punished. And when they are wearing the collar, they could be punished. And once the dog has learned that and become, this is what they call collar wise. When the dog has become collar wise, you can never stop using the collar because when as soon as you take it off, which you have to for competition, as soon as you take it off, the dog is just going to go AWOL or do their own thing because they know that you can't do anything about it. Ha ha kind of thing. Well, I'm sure that's not the thought process in the dog's head. That's me projecting stuff here. But anyway, so how does this relate to food? Well, it's a similar thing. So if you use lots of food when it's you and dummies out and about and you're doing the clicker retrieve or maybe you're in your house or whatever, and then as soon as you get to, to a situation where you've got shots fired and you've got game falling and you know all the rest of it, that you suddenly stop using all food, then your dog is going to realize, oh, when there's game around and shots are fired, food is off the table. There's not going to be any food available. So when you recall me and want me to stop hunting and come back to you, I'm not going to do that actually because I like hunting. I'm just going to, you're not going to give me a food reinforcement when I come back to you in this situation because you taught me that that's not available in this situation. So I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. And then when you want to compete with your dog, your dog is going to associate again that competition environment, which is very similar to a sort of regular working environment in terms of there's game around, there's shots fired, there's, there's dogs, there's bustle, there's, you know, I'm sure a wise dog can discriminate between a trial and a, a shoot, but You've got to acknowledge there's a lot in common, in the UK at least. So I would actually encourage you to blur the boundaries between a shoot and a trial or a working test or, you know, as much as possible. So that means using food as much as you can in a training environment or in a working environment, which is not competitive. So that when the dog is 
in a competition environment, they don't know there's not going to be food available. They don't know that you're not going to give them anything because to them, everything seems exactly the same as a situation when you do give them something. Does this make sense? I hope I'm explaining it properly. So it's actually the reverse. So when you are in competition, obviously you can't be liberally supplying your dog with sausages and treats and things under the judge's nose. And this is what we talked about in the previous episode that you probably want to listen back to. I don't think it's that many episodes ago. But yeah, so what the things to do there are you can, for example, walk away, thank the judge very much, put your leash back on your dog, walk away from your dog. And once you've reached a distance, your judge is usually occupied with the next person. By then you can give your dog a treat. You can even use a verbal marker like yes, when the dog delivers the dummy. Or if you don't want to use a verbal marker because you don't want to say something to your dog, you can have something that you do. So you maybe just tap your leg with, with your other hand or something, just something that the dog experiences as a marker, which the dog then knows that when you get away, that you're going to get a treat. And that marker tells the dog, you've earned a treat for this behavior. And it doesn't matter if you then walk away from the judge, you say, thank you very much, blah, blah, blah. When you give the dog a treat, they're going to understand that that's for the thing they did back there with the judge, which is when they delivered the retrieve or whatever it was. Um, so I hope that makes sense. But there are ways that you can still use food. So yeah. And obviously, as I said, you want to be blurring the boundaries between a real kind of working environment, which is not competitive and some sort of test or competition environment as, as much as you can, because then the dog's not going to be able to discriminate. And from the dog's perspective, it'll just be very occasionally they don't get a treat, but most of the time they do get a treat, for example. So the number of times that you recall your dog and give them something amazing, if one time out of a hundred times, out of a thousand times that you recall your dog, you don't give them a treat, it's not going to result in the entire behavior falling apart, especially if you then go home with your dog and train your dog and recall your dog and give them a treat. You know, they're going to forget that one time they didn't get a treat. It's not going to affect the behavior at all. So yeah, if food results in strong behaviors, why seek to stop using food? It doesn't make any sense at all. So you can put treats in your pocket and go out with your dog. It's, you know, just another little thing to have on you. And then the final thing that I would say, actually, the final piece of the puzzle is that as your dog gains experience and gets better at their job and comes to enjoy the working thing that is you and them being out together, eventually the work itself will start to replace the food. So you'll blow your sit whistle, your dog will stop to the flush. And instead of walking over and reinforcing your dog with a treat or throwing your dog a ball or something, you'll just say, get on and release your dog to continue hunting. And that will be the reward. So the dog will sit in order to earn the reinforcer to continue hunting. So you can't push the dog to that stage of the work itself being rewarding faster than the dog is able to go. That was my main piece of advice there. So people always want to push towards their end goal of never using food and the dog just finds the work rewarding and blah, blah, blah. But you can't do that because that's got to be led by the dog. And the dog tells you when they're ready to stop using the food as a reinforcer and to start to use the work itself more. And that will be quite a gradual process, but you'll just find that, you know, you're getting back from a day out with your dog and you look at your treat bag in your pocket and you've only used four treats or something. And it's not because you were trying not to use treats. It's just because those were the only times it seemed that your dog needed a treat as a reinforcer. The rest of the time you were able to just release them to hunt on or, you know, the work itself started to become reinforcing and the dog's relationship with you started to become woven in there with the work. Does that make sense? 
So, yes, I think, and if you listen back to the previous episode, we talk about that in a lot more detail. But you, yeah, in a short way, you don't want to be aiming for that, pushing that as a process to go faster and driving that process. You want the dog to be driving that process. So you just stop looking at it as a thing. Stop thinking about how do I stop using food? And one day you'll look up and you'll realize, oh, I've only used four sausages on this entire afternoon. And you'll realize that your dog is moving towards the point of actually not really needing the food very much anymore. And that's the time when, well, you just continue on the path that you're on, really. But there are some behaviors that you're probably always going to need to reinforce, like the recall, for example, because it's not innately reinforcing. No dog wants to stop hunting and come back to you and be put on the lead. That's never going to be reinforcing in itself. So there are some behaviors which is always going to benefit you to reinforce your dog for in all the situations that you can, obviously not in competition, but you know, if you're just working your dog and you recall them back at the end of a drive or something, that's a great time to just give them a treat going back to you and you're going to put them on the lead because that's in itself never going to be reinforcing for a dog with a lot of hunting driver instinct. So you probably will st- still need to use treats sometimes, but just not very many. And it will just start to fade away into the background and not be like this central thing. Um, in your training. I hope that makes sense. It's all a bit vague and wishy-washy. All right, guys. So let's just stop answering listening questions now. I I don't think we've got through all of them, but the others will just have to wait. Hold the line. That's all for this week, everybody. I am planning an episode about Roche, which is going to be the third part of the Behavioural Trilogy. You might have noticed we only have two parts to the Behavioural Trilogy so far. Um, So I kind of have that one in the works. And I think that one's going to be very interesting for people who have really driven, drivey, strong hunting, bonkers, crazy, you know, that kind of dog. Um, or maybe adolescent dogs generally anyway. So yeah, that's the kind of dog that Rosh is. And she's a really great dog, but she's a difficult dog in many ways. Um, and anyway, you can look forward to that episode coming up quite soon. But for now, that's all for this week. Ding 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 